We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, I guess the big news of the day today is uh, that we finally have a new speaker. And, you know, I'm watching um, some stuff on the news last night because it's really the only life I have. And, and, uh, and CTV was reporting, and I actually replayed it back to hear it again, that, um, you know, what comes with the speaker's chair is a, uh, a house and a modest apartment in Ottawa and, and, uh, obviously a bump in salary. And it, it, and it also comes with a staff. And I had to play back and listen again, but they said like 2000, it can't be that big and it must encompass everything. But that being said, I, I think what it points to is how big the staff is for the speaker of the house. And again, whoever you want to point the finger at, the fact that you can have all of these resources, all of these tools in the toolbox, as they like to say, uh, at your fingertips, and you can't realize you got a Nazi in the gallery, is it just blows my mind. So it's nice to see the pomp and circumstance and history being made with the speaker today, uh, before we get to that. Um, but, but again, and I've, I've been trying to find out how, and I've got Will on this too. How big is the staff of the speaker? What are their roles? And, and, you know, it's, 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 it takes a bit of digging because it's not, it's not, it's not on the first five pages of where you're going to be searching. So, uh, but we'll keep looking for that. And, and again, it just shines a light. And we all know that everything, you know, there's more, there, there's more government people. There's more, everything's, you know, the bloated inside, in size, 30% since the prime minister took office. So again, how big is the staff or the speaker of the house? And surely nobody, nobody did uh, a search. It, 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 it's, it's easier to find out more about the Nazi in the gallery than it is to find out how many people are in the staff of the, uh, the speaker's office. Trust me, I'm looking. All right. So anyway, uh, enough of that. Today, history made and uh, liberal MP from Montreal, uh, Greg Fergus is the new House leader. He's the first black speaker to ever be elected. So very historic there. Uh, we're going to play you some clips here. And uh, if you've ever seen this man being interviewed on television or any any sort of sur- uh, media sources or such, he's always seems to be a very uh, thoughtful guy, uh, very much a gentleman and uh, and seems to be a pretty nice guy and a, and a good candidate for for the job. Here's what he had to say about all of this. This is the new Speaker of the House, Craig, uh, Greg Fergus. And thank you for the applause. I know that uh, in politics, the, uh, there are only two times when people are, give you a strong applause and they're happy to see you. The day you arrive and, of course, the day you leave. <laughs> so there can be no dialogue unless there's a mutual understanding of respect. If there can be no ability to pursue the arguments, to make your points be heard, unless we all agree to extend to each other that sense of respect and decorum. So I'm going to be working hard on this. 
Uh, and, and that sounds incredibly noble, but when have you not heard every single speaker who ever got the gig say that? And for some reason, it just keeps uh, deteriorating and deteriorating and deteriorating. But, you know, maybe that reflects just uh, the frustration that Canadians are feeling uh, across the country as well as uh, in the House of Commons. But, you know, a couple of things on the docket. Do we change the process uh, so more people vet what... Uh, the speaker is doing when he invites people into the into the gallery. And, and again, as I said or alluded to earlier, I think those checks and balances are already in place. But if you don't present the information, if you don't pass along the information, then it doesn't get heard. And, you know, we've heard the same thing uh, with the election interference calls against the Chinese Communist Party, CSIS sending this information up. Uh, it's getting to the Prime Minister's office. Katie Telford, the Chief of Staff, says nothing gets by him or nothing uh, isn't presented to him and yet didn't get it. Same thing with the Paul Bernardo situation and Marco Mendicino, who one of the cabinet ministers that had to fall on his sword. Where, Where is that all now? Uh, so it, it seems that the staff, really, what they're used for is an excuse to blame uh, people when the leadership seems to be incompetent. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any changes in the role of the speaker or how they present things or if there is just a renewed interest in focusing on the rules uh, that they already have. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say about this very historic occasion. Mr. Speaker, today you are the first black Canadian to become Speaker of this House. be inspiring for all Canadians, especially younger generations who want to get involved in politics. All right, there you have it, the uh, Prime Minister uh, welcoming the new Speaker of the House. Again, very historic uh, day, not only because I believe it's the first time it's had to happen this way, and also uh, the first blacker of the speak, uh, a black Speaker of the House to be elected in Canadian Parliament. So quite a historic day uh, today. All right, lots coming up in the next hour or so. Uh, Ukraine still needs Canada's oil, and the new Cabinet Ministers still haven't had their mandate letters delivered to them. What is their job? We'll get to the bottom of all of that. All right. Uh, other big news of the day is, uh, of course, the Speaker, the new Speaker of the House. And that is a result of uh, the, the embarrassment uh, with the President Zelensky visit from Ukraine and a Nazi in the gallery. And with all the commotion of that and the pomp and circumstance of the actual event itself, uh, did we miss the message? What is the purpose of all of this? What did the president have to say? And there's an interesting article right now uh, from Colin Craig, president of Think Tank, SecondStreet.org, uh, in the Financial Post. And it's read between Zelensky's lines. Canada needs to export export more oil and gas. Russia has weaponized industry, in, uh, energy, sorry, and Canada has the wherewithal to respond, but so far lacks the will. And to talk more about all of this, uh, Colin Craig is with us. Now, Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me. So has all of the commotion, uh, first with the pomp and circumstance and then the embarrassment, kind of distracted from any message there? I I think it has. You know, Zelensky spoke before Parliament and then, you know, moments later, everyone kind of realized that, uh, you know, there was this soldier with a very controversial past, to say the least, that uh, was given a standing ovation by Parliament. And then things went sideways for a number of days. And you know, I wrote this column for the National Post today thinking that, you know, it's important to kind of go back and focus on what Zelensky actually said, because there's a very important message there. 
about uh, what Canada could do to help out Ukraine and what's actually uh, what Russia's doing with its oil and gas sales right now. So what stands out for you there, Colin? Well, Zelensky basically stood before Parliament and talked about how Russia was using its oil and gas sales as a weapon and that it's very important for the world to stop buying from Russia. And if you think about it, it's like, well, why would Zelensky say this in Canada? Because we don't buy any Russian oil or Russian oil products anymore. And the reason, if you look at what he said, he's basically telling Canada, like, come on, it's time for you to step up. You've got lots of oil and gas here. At least I think this is Zelensky's message. And that we should export it so that the world doesn't have to buy from Russia anymore. And if, if the world stops buying from Russia, then Putin will have fewer dollars to buy tanks and rockets to attack countries like Ukraine. So that's, uh, I think, the subtle but clear message that Zelensky was trying to to give to Canada, because, of course, we make it so hard to export our oil and gas products abroad. And, Why would... Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Why would Zelensky code it that way? I mean, why do you have to interpret it? Why did he just not come out and say, hey, you know what we really need? Thanks very much. Uh, Diplomacy? Why not? You know, I I think the reality is that Zelensky wanted to be careful because Canada has been, I think, a good ally to Ukraine in their fight. We've uh, committed a a reported nine and a half billion dollars to help Ukraine since the war began. So he doesn't want to come in and you know, pick a fight with us. But I think he's very subtly and, and tactfully trying to say, like, come on, you guys, you, you got to do your part to help out here. And, uh, you know, the point that we we raise in the column is that we understand the federal government is very concerned about climate change. That's fine. Green light more oil and gas prod- projects so that we can build the pipelines, get our resources to market in other countries. We've got to get the pipeline, the, the oil and natural gas to the coast mm-hmm. so that we can get it on ships and ship it to other countries that are buying from Russia right now. That That is key. We need these pipelines to go ahead. And if we do that, then they, these countries can stop buying from Russia. And it's not going to happen overnight. It will take time. But I think even if Canada started to kind of turn the page and show that we're serious about giving the world an alternative to buying from Russia, then uh, that would be very good. Now, for the federal government, like I say, it's very concerned about climate change. Well, what it could do is if it greenlighted more of these projects, it would have billions upon billions of dollars in tax revenues and loyalty revenues that it could then use to put towards fighting climate change. So there is an opportunity for them there. I think we just need a bit more of a a broader vision on these these, uh, issues than what we're seeing right now. Colin, I've had this conversation with a bazillion academics and they, who are on the side, on more of the environmental side, and they'll say, this is a temporary problem. It's a, t- it's a tapering problem. Everything's going to peak within the decade. This is all for naught. It just keeps death by delay. And, you know, I remember even asking Elizabeth May about this and saying, why don't we, you know, first get the world off coal using the uh, liquid natural gas? And it's uh, too late for that. It's like I have an interview of her saying that 20 years ago. And if we had done it then, where would we be? So, uh, again, you, you, it's just it's like death by delay or death uh, by delay, Colin. It just, you know, whatever reason delays it and that somehow it'll just the demand will stop. Yeah. And I, I think the problem is that too often people that are leading this discussion are not they're not being very mature and realistic about things. And, mm. you know, I, I think it's great that we're seeing people talking more about nuclear power as an option. We're seeing wind and solar as options that are coming about. 
that's positive for consumers is good when there's a lot of competition to provide energy that's positive but uh, the reality is is that the world is still using a heck of a lot of oil and natural gas every single day that is expected to continue for decades to come uh, so it's, it's not like we're going to wave a magic wand and you know five years from now no one's going to be using oil i mean that's, yeah. that's preposterous but people honestly it. think that call and there are people that think that well people have been saying now for decades, like you said, yeah. Scott, I mean, how many times now have we seen reports in media about the end of oil and peak oil and so forth? I mean, this has been going on for decades. And I, you know, this is where I say, you know, we've got to be realistic about this and, and just look at the fact of what Russia is doing with these dollars that it is get, uh, getting from selling the world oil. It is buying tanks and rockets. They're attacking the people of Ukraine. You know, there's a lady that is working on a, a documentary right now and she told us about this Ukrainian farmer that she was talking to through Zoom. And she saw he had a grenade in his pocket. And this, this poor mm. gentleman, he, you know, he's a regular farmer. Now he's been uh, recruited to work and defend his country as a soldier. And he, he said, well, I actually carry two grenades with me at all time. And, and one of them I, I keep so that I can throw it at Russian soldiers if, I'm, uh, uh, if they, they take me hostage. And the second one I'm going to use for myself. Hmm. Him take his own life and he said that he can't stand the thought of what russian soldiers are doing to ukrainians right now they're castrating soldiers torturing them doing all kinds of just abominable things just terrible terrible things and he doesn't want to return that way so that is the type of thing that's happening as we speak and, and sit rather comfortably hmm. here in canada and uh, our politicians uh, tilt at windmills instead of you know, doing what I think would be a more responsible approach to managing both climate change and um, the need for, uh, you know, doing Canada's part on the international stage right now. Well said. Colin Craig with us, president of the think tank, secondstreet.org, and the latest in uh, both the Financial Post and National Post. Read between Zelensky's lines, Canada needs to export more oil and gas. Colin, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, thanks a lot, Scott. You know, it's hard to remember what the crisis of, uh, of the day is, the crisis du jour, because, uh, they, well, they just happen one right after the other. And and we remember prior to the embarrassment of President Zelensky's visit and the Nazi in the gallery, uh, prior to that, it, there was a, a very, very uh, uh, important situation, we'll say, a sensitive situation regarding India and information that had come to Canada uh, that had, had said that the Indian government is involved, allegedly involved, in the killing of a Sikh separatist in British Columbia, a Canadian, on Canadian soil. Where is that discussion going, number one, with that investigation and whatever's happening post this little incident? And and what about trade and moving forward with India? Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. It's good to speak with you, Scott. So Canada to remove 41 of its 62 diplomats uh, in India. I, I, what is this the next stage? Where is this going? Well, obviously, you know, unlike the weather in Hamilton, which is very hot, the relations between <laughs> India and China are in the deep freeze, uh, quite the opposite of the way it should be. Um, you know, clearly, whatever negotiations have been going on between Canada and India, they have been going badly as now, you know, and initially India expelled one Canadian reciprocally to our expulsion of one Indian diplomat uh, 
after Mr. Trudeau stated that there are allegations of Indian government possible involvement in the um, in the death of the Sikh activist um, uh, back in June. Um, right now, our government is saying they're not going to do any retaliation. And then our Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie, said, we will continue to engage privately because we think that diplomatic conversations are best when they remain private. Well, of course, it would have been great if they'd figured this out before they <laughs> implied that the Indian president oh, had ordered my. a hit on a Canadian citizen in Canada by sending two guys to blast automatic guns to the window of his truck while he was yes. sitting, you know, at the at the mm. wheel. So the whole thing is just uh, we forgive don't know my laughter about by the, the details, way. but yeah. You know, it looks like our government is not handling this very well. Uh, forgive my laughter, but it's, uh, you know, one side of the mouth saying this, the other saying something completely different. Are they talking, though, Charles? Is India, uh, does India and Canada have a dialogue going now? Do we know anything about that, even though, as uh, Melanie Jolie said, it's it's in private? I is there talk going on? And if so, why would we be expelling people? Well, I mean, they're doing the expelling, so it suggests that they're very unhappy about any engagement they've been having with Canada in this matter. Uh, certainly, you know, the Indian side claims that Canada has not provided um, the evidence of the very serious allegations against the government of India. Canadian side says they have. Um, our allies are more or less trying to keep out of it. And I would say that this will seriously impact on Canada's ability to function in multilateral global institutions because nobody will be wanting to be sitting next to Canada if the Indians are freezing us out at a time when India has become the world's most populous nation. And we really need to, to develop much more connection with India economically and strategically um, if we are to meet the challenge of, of China's um, disruption of the, the rules-based international order. So, you know, it's just looking extremely bad. And frankly, I don't see any way out of it for the Trudeau government. That was my next question, Charles. Is this fixable? Is that doable? I mean, uh, the Indian media obviously pretty harsh on Trudeau and calling for him to to step down. Will it take a new leader for um, uh, for dialogue to continue? Well, you know, they, the most likely candidate for the, cons the conservative minister of foreign affairs, if, if they win the next election, is a gentleman called Shuvaloy Majumber, who recently won the by-election in the Calgary riding that was previously occupied by former Prime Minister Harper. Uh, Mr. Majumber has had a, a, you know, a long record of wanting to enhance Canada's ties with India. And I would imagine that that might make a difference if if we had a government that came in that was not the one that accused or implied that that the leader of India was involved in in uh, extrajudicial killings in foreign countries. So, you know whether that whether that's true or not, um, you know the the fact of the matter is that this very serious allegation has not been clarified to us. And the way the prime minister phrased it, it didn't look like we were absolutely sure that this is going on. And moreover, he says, well, he can't talk about it much anymore because it could um, interfere with the ongoing investigation. You know, why did he speak before the investigation was yeah. complete is the real issue mm -hmm. here. 
Um, so is it now up to Canada to provide that evidence to India? Are, are they discussing that? And, and where is the investigation on this? Does this, uh, does what's happened with what the prime minister said change that investigation or the complexion of it? Well, you know, according to the New York Times, the information of the alleged connection came from the Americans, but that the Canadians have the evidence. Uh, you know, from my point of view, I just don't understand why we're not being given the fact of the matter. I mean, if the Indian government did order an extrajudicial um, killing, you know, that's a very serious matter that all of our allies would want to back us up on. But so far, you know, what we're hearing from the from the Brits and and the Australians and other countries is that they're not going to do anything until they until they see the evidence that that what has been alleged is in fact able to be proved in fact by very solid information and so far we don't have that you know it seems very unlikely that we could ever show a direct line between the senior levels of the Modi government and the and the two men who assassinated this this gentleman or possibly three you know we don't even mm. know for sure but they have not been arrested and we don't seem to have any evidence of who they are or how they left the country if they did or anything you know the, the whole thing is just one big mess and uh, the implications the future implications for canada of this are enormous you know it just at this critical time in international relations we really can't afford to be completely alienated from the world's most populous nation are allies giving our prime minister any advice on this? Uh, I, you know, uh, what we hear is that he attempted to engage them at the G20 to try and get their support for condemning India, even, you know, putting in a condemnation of India at the G20 that was being hosted by India. And evidently that didn't work. So the idea that, you know, Canada has great influence in the world and are able to to get our allies to follow with what we want is being proven um, to be something that was more in the past than in the present. So I think Mr. Trudeau, to my assessment, has very much uh, misjudged this information and the, the overall influence of Canada in global affairs. And it's not like he can say, well, I heard it from the other five eyes, go ask them. Uh, yes, I don't think so. And the Americans have not been forthcoming about this either. So, you know, we're not getting that kind of backup hmm. because, you know, the development of strong relations between the United States and India is absolutely central to to yeah. what the United States is trying to do to to, you know, reduce the, the threat of China and to try and get India on our side with regard to Russia. So, you know, this the situation, I don't think the Americans expected Mr. Trudeau to make that statement in Parliament that he made when they provided him with the with the secret intelligence, whatever it may have been, and we mm. really don't know how solid that information really was. Charles Burton with the Senior Fellow, Centre for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at Macdonald-Laurier Institute, the future relationship with Canada and India. Where is that going? Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care. Thank you. All right. New Speaker of the House today. 
a very historic day. Uh, uh, the first uh, black minister, black, sorry, speaker of the House, uh, member of parliament, uh, given the job of speaker uh, today. So very historic day in the House. Obviously, Anthony Rota stepping down over the President Zelensky uh, issue and such. But um, in all of this commotion, uh, some have said there still isn't any mandate letters to cabinet ministers, considering that there was a, a cabinet shuffle a while back and uh, no real clear direction of which uh, of what everybody's role is moving forward in this new uh, cabinet. Let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, Professor Emeritus, Politics and Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University. And with us now, Wayne, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. And no problem. What, what does this matter, Wayne? Is it so what? Two months? Big deal. There's lots going on. Clearly, there's lots of distraction here for the prime minister at this point in time. You got lots of fires to put out. Is this uh, how big an issue is this to not know what you're doing two months out? Uh, well, I mean, it, it really isn't an issue. So-called mandate letters. They've only been around for a couple of decades for the first hundred plus years of, of, of Canada government. Canada, there was no need for mandate letters. The second thing about mandate letters is no sooner were they introduced when, in fact, it turns out that there were two mandate letters. There was the one that you posted on the ministry website, which was basically a beauty pageant document. And then there was the one that the premier or prime minister actually gave you that wants you to do certain things. Mm. So uh, this is really a non-event. Does it solidify, clarify what direction government's going in? Well, governments have always been in cabinet governments, you know, have have used cabinet secrecy time immemorial to shield, in fact, what they uh, intend to do. Um, so, yeah, sure. It, 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 it doesn't allow us to see inside. I don't think they ever wanted us to, frankly. Why do this? Why not have them? Yeah, why bother with the exercise then? Why, if if we, well, as if, I said, it, it became a public relations kind of exercise. It was a way to, you know, assure the voters yeah. that you know, and in the same way we do speeches to the throne, which are filled with the most grand promises that one can imagine, and no one really thinks that the government is should somehow be held directly to account should they not act on what's in a speech from the throne. Uh, you know, they, 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 they historically have governed as they see fit. And, you know, so the fact that there is or isn't a mandate letter is, is not a, a huge issue. Too many fires to, uh, uh, to distract at this point, to not a priority, uh, too much stuff going on, uh, too much damage control? Well, I, I suspect it's even possible the government has come to its own conclusion that the public has seen through these letters and doesn't put a whole lot of uh, stock in them. And, uh, you know, that would certainly be my advice to, to anybody who, if they're asking, how do I know what government's up to? I'd say, well, the mandate letter isn't likely to tell you. So uh, let's I, I can't let you go away without asking you your thoughts on relations with India. Forty one, I believe, of 62 diplomats asked to uh, to go home from India. Your thoughts on the relationship moving forward? Well, certainly it, it's going to be a trying time for a while yet. What the Indian government engaged in, if we're to judge the intelligence coming from the Five Eyes group, uh, 
certainly violated the most fundamental aspect of sovereignty that a country has. What What does the prime minister do now, moving forward? How do you do? You, where does this go? Because it obviously looks like the allies are saying, "Oh man, shouldn't have done this right now." Um, wh- wh- how does the prime minister move forward on this? I, I think one, you let time pass. You attend some uh, events, multilateral or bilateral, of a not necessarily significant way and begin to talk once again and hopefully engender some kind of thaw. Is that option running thin for this government? Uh, uh, it seems that that is their uh, policy on a lot of things. Have, have, has, have people grown weary of that? Is it still working? You mean they're, how they approach? Just keep, yeah, just keep delaying, just keep delaying, 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 and hopefully time heals all wounds. Yeah, it it isn't a case of delay so much as that, you know, diplomatically countries are always in the business of saving face. And we can't expect the Indian government to say, okay, you caught me. That is not going to happen. What what you hope to see is that one, they stop and they make sure that uh, they don't have any other uh, plans for Canada and for dealing with uh, some of their political issues uh, in Canada. And, uh, you know, that's diplomacy is, is all about timing and making sure people always, countries always have an opportunity to change behavior without necessarily being required to formally acknowledge that they are changing behavior. Was this a misstep for the PM, Wayne? Not really. I, don't, I, I think, as I said, the most fundamental aspect of sovereignty is control over one's own borders and what happens inside them. And uh, once it was brought to their attention, and you know that's the irony here, this wasn't uncovered by uh, a domestic uh, foreign intelligence. It was actually passed on from one of our Five Eyes partners. Mm-hmm. So once that information was shared, uh, you really didn't have any choice. Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, uh, Politics of the World. Wayne, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, you too. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. How's that? You might remember Sean and Ed Brewing Company in Dundas released a special stand with Ukraine Lager last year. We talked to them about that. And they're even doing more and have announced a benefit concert on Sunday, October 15th uh, with a band originally from Ukraine. And uh, obviously, uh, the brewery has done a lot to uh, support and help uh, humanitarian causes uh, back in Ukraine and such and are continuing to talk more about all of this and what is going down. Mark Bowden with us room manager with Sean and Ed Brewing Company and here now. Mark, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, thank you very much. And thanks for playing that clip. That uh, does way more to explain what this kind of band sounds like than how I could have described it. I was going to say to you, okay, Mark, without the clip, now describe that band. (laughs) Very, very high energy, fast paced, uh, a lot of uh, accordion, clarinet, uh, folky, klezmer band stuff. It's a very high energy. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right. So, uh, first of all, give us the logistics. Tell us everything about this evening, and then we'll go from there. 
Yep. So uh, Sunday, October 15th, between 7 and 9, coming in all the way from Odessa, Ukraine, is uh, Communa Lux is the name of the band. Uh, these guys are doing a bit of a, a North American uh, Eastern Seaboard kind of tour. And uh, we happen to be right in between Lansing, Michigan and Ottawa, Ontario. So uh, they're stopping here on the Sunday night to uh, to play some tunes for us. And how long have they been here? Talk a little about this band and and why they're doing this. Obviously, to bring attention to what is going on, but but talk a little bit more about the band and the tour. Yeah, they uh, they've been touring around the world. They play an awful lot of festivals, especially in Europe. Uh, very popular around the Oktoberfest time, uh, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, play some pretty big beer halls all through uh, Europe, uh, Germany. And uh, have uh, stretched out to uh, spread their wings out to North America. So we're very fortunate that uh, their North American manager caught wind of us having done these stand with Ukraine um, beer bottles for our, that fundraiser. And when they were looking for places to play, our our brewery popped up, and uh, and here we are. So uh, we consider ourselves pretty lucky to be able to land these guys here. So this is all going to happen at the brewery on Sunday, October fifteenth. Yep, we can uh, hold about 150, 160 people in here, so it should be pretty packed. Uh, you got to get your tickets uh, through loggershed.com backslash events. Uh, so we've already raised $5,000 through our, our beer bottle sales uh, with the special label. But uh, Ed, O'Shawn and Ed said, hey, how can we make this even bigger? Let's, we don't just want to like write a check and go, here you go. How can we turn this into something even bigger? And then this kind of fell in our laps, and here we are. Wow, that's amazing. So talk about the, the Stand with Ukraine logger from last year, uh, how that all go, got going, and, and, and why Sean and Ed are going in this direction. Uh, you know what? We're all about, uh, we always say vocal about local, and we're always looking for things in our community. And we know there's a lot of people from the Ukraine with uh, roots that, uh, that go back there. And we also have a lot of people that have ended up in Hamilton due to the conflict going on in, in Ukraine. So we that it was really, how can we help? And uh, we came up with a pretty cool bottle that uh, was all yellow and blue, of course, and had Stand With Ukraine all over it. And uh, Sean and Ed said, okay, well, let's, uh, let's see if we can sell 5,000 of these, and we'll donate a dollar back from every bottle sold. Well, they went through those 5,000 super quick, so uh, we were really happy <laughs> to do that. Uh, we're always looking to do things with community partners. There's plenty of charity events to go on here, and uh, it's just part of what you do when you're a part of the community. And talk about the atmosphere at Sean and Ed. You said you got room for 150 people there. It's a pretty cool space. Uh, if you haven't been to our historic building in downtown Dundas, Ontario, it's about, uh, we figured the building is about 160 years old, uh, probably a foundry at one point, and was one of Canada's first indoor skating and curling rinks. So as Sean and Ed said, you know, what guys wouldn't want to open up a brewery in an old uh, curling rink? And uh, here they are seven and a half years later into making beer. And uh, it's become quite a venue for all kinds of different events. We have comedy nights, dueling pianos, silent discos, uh, just comedy shows. It's all kinds, all kinds of great stuff going on here. So if people want to get tickets, are there still tickets available for this event on October 15th? Yeah, we're about uh, halfway sold out, and we're getting a lot of interest. A lot of people from Toronto actually buying tickets. And uh, if they go on to loggershed.com backslash events, you'll see it there. Just buy your tickets online, and uh, we hope to see you on October 15th. And what about the stand with Ukraine lager? Is that still available or is that limited run over? Uh, that was just special packaging. It was our, our most uh, eminently drinkable craft lager, the Lager Shed Original. So it's always available here. Also, LCBO, beer store, grocery store, 
Uh, you can get it all over the place. But the label, the label for now is gone. All right. So how do you explain the interest? You said you got friends uh, or, or uh, people inquiring uh, from far away as Toronto and such about this. How do you explain the interest in this? You know what? Uh, I, I think the Ukrainian community is actually pretty pretty tight. And word gets around. They've, they've got mm. the, there's lots of Facebook groups and there's lots of uh, um, community groups that uh, they all talk. And uh, something big's coming up. They talk. They want to support it. And then uh, they tell their friends. So we're going to have quite a mixture of people here. Uh, we're going to have to make sure we get a bit of a dance floor because it's going to be hopping. <laughs> For sure. Uh, Sunday, October 15th, uh, Sean and Ann Brewing in Dundas, uh, a special night f- featuring folk jazz band Communa Lux, originally from Odessa, Ukraine, in town, and uh, going to be a part of the festivities and, and obviously uh, the culmination with Stand with Ukraine Lager of last year, uh, which, of course, uh, is going to amount to a $5,000 donation. Mark, thanks so much for the time and insight. Good luck with all of this moving forward. Much appreciated, Scott. Take care. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Brand new speaker of the House today, Craig Fergus, sworn in the first black man to a black person to be the speaker in the House of Commons. Of course, that set in motion after uh, Speaker Rhoda had to step down due to uh, the Nazi in the gallery situation and what happened with that. But you might remember prior to all of this happening just a few days before that uh, the prime minister stood in the house of commons and and said that uh, they had allegations or had ebit, had uh, intelligence that said uh, that uh, alleged that the indian government was linked to the killing of a sikh separatist on canadian soil in british columbia uh, back in june and then that was it all that was that was all that was said and then of course uh, the president zelensky thing and we kind of moved on from this that being said india has not and have expelled or asked to leave some 41 of 62 diplomats. Where are we now? Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and here now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. So, Elliot, we, we go back to uh, uh, the prime minister saying this in the House of Commons. Uh, later, it came out that there was intelligence from the five eyes that uh, had talked about all of this. When, when the prime minister got that information, what should he have done as opposed to just stand up in the House and and reveal it? Well, it's quite clear that there was great effort put to, on to keeping this discreet and and behind the scenes and a lot of diplomatic uh, conversations. It was not intended to be a public statement, except for the very energetic and efficient uh, journalists that we have in Canada. It was about to be broken uh, into the press. But before that, there was a lot of effort after the, uh, and remember the context, this, this is a government that has been accused of uh, not listening to the intelligence uh, over China. And they got scorched for this. So no government in Canada was going to ignore intelligence that there was something uh, going on that was untoward, uh, reported by the intelligence community. We sent our um, national security advisor, Jody Thomas, uh, this is the the advisor to the government, twice to India, once for four days, once for five days, I think the head of CSIS went. And then privately, privately, the issue was raised at the G20 when our prime minister joined all the others at the G20. So there was a great effort to uh, to try to resolve this this uh, very charged environment by by uh, keeping it quiet. And right now, once it's over, once we have this out in the news, 
the government of Canada is once again saying, we aren't trying to pick a fight with India. We're not trying to, uh, to have bad relations with India. We want to go back to quiet diplomacy. Our, our foreign minister just said that. Um, what did the what did the government think the reaction would be? Because clearly the allies have distanced themselves from us on this. Well, I'm not so sure they have. Uh, I know that's a, a common perception, but in fact, uh, the allies were the source of some of the information very directly. Mm-hmm. The allies, the U.S. said uh, sent their, their diplomats, sent their ambassador to Canada out into the public on the airwaves, saying, "Oh yes, we were." We provided some of this information, and then the uh, Anthony Blinken, the foreign minister, said there's an effort to drive a wedge between Canada and the U.S. It's not going to happen, and their security advisor, Jake Sullivan, has said no one gets an exemption for this. So I think there's very clear messaging going on, plus the information we hear that President Biden raised this himself at the G20, again, off the record with Mr. Modi. So there's been a lot of um, public-private going on. Everybody uh, wants to have India on their side. Everybody in the democratic world in this emerging world order because of the emergence of China and their wolf warrior diplomacy and also because of you know the Russian situation. India is a key player. Everybody wants India to be a responsible player. But this, of course, is uh, throwing up a cloud uh, in that regard. So what happens now, Elliot? What's in uh, India's reaction is one of expelling 41 diplomats. They say they're asking for proof. Uh, uh, is any of that happening? Well, I think they have the proof. Yeah. <laughs> they're well aware of the situation. No, I think this is a real test case, not for Canada, but for India. India is an emerging power. There's a lot to be proud of in terms of what they've been doing. Uh, their, their successes and all kinds of areas. It's very impressive. And I'm a longtime promoter of good Canada-India relations. I'm terribly saddened by what's going on. But what we do know is that the world expects now India to play a role. They want that role to be a positive role, one that uh, uh, is a reliable partner going forward. I think this is a test case for India. And right now, I don't think they're doing very well on it. They are treating Canada and NATO a member, a G7 member, uh, with something like contempt. How India chooses to present this situation and themselves going forward, I think is going to be a real test case for what kind of country we know about China and <laughs> we know about Russia. Mm-hmm. What kind of country will India be as an emerging power? Does India's reaction to this, expelling the diplomats, uh, obviously giving the cold shoulder to the prime minister, does that create suspicion? In other words, if they were innocent, they wouldn't be acting this way. Yes, I've been waiting for the next step. And the next step was one we've just seen. And it's a very negative one. Uh, they, if they ex- expel 21 of our, uh, our diplomats, that means they will have 60 here and we will have 21 there, a sharp reduction. Then Canada will have to... Uh, reduce its presence in India, which would be very unfortunate indeed at this stage. The, I'm not sure where this goes for here. As I say, I think the ball is really in India's court, not in Canada's court, for showing what kind of an emerging power they wish to be. And right now, the signs are rather disconcerting. We remember 20 years ago, not that long ago, when China was the golden goose. Everybody was courting them. They were the future. They were this. They were that. And we know where we ended up there. Are you concerned the same thing will happen to India? You said it's up to India now to prove sort of their world worth. 
Yes, you can count on the fact that the world will, the Western world, the democratic world will continue to court India. They use their weight very, very well. They have a very talented civil service. Their foreign service is very skilled. They will you continue to use their weight very successfully going forward, I think. But you may count on it that every country that has a large Indian diaspora is now going to be viewing India in a different fashion as a result of what we've just discovered. Uh, they are going to be viewed publicly as you know, a potential partner and a lot of smiles. But privately, I think they've already paid a reputational cost. How they are being viewed uh, going forward is largely dependent, again, on how this works out between Canada and India. Does this divide the Indian community, both at home and here? One of the worst parts of all of this is that yeah. Mr. Modi is being accused of using divisions within India. Let's put it differently. I was asked by a Canadian diplomat going to India a few years ago what I thought. And I said, well, Mr. Modi's economic policies may come into conflict with his social policies. So the, the Hindutva policies, the uh, Hindu majoritarianism that's being used in India and the increasing strain on not only their minorities, but also on press freedom and so forth. It disturbs me as a friend of India to see India routinely in the public media uh, classed of thought more and more with authoritarian states. The, the um, step forward on this, I don't know. As a, I'm, I'm hoping that the internal pressures, keeping in mind how important for Canada, uh, the Indian relationship is in terms of our population. When we have something like 1.4 million people of Indian origin, and about half of them Sikhs who have been a dynamic part of Canada for so mm -hmm. long, uh, India doesn't recognize dual citizenship. So anybody who wants to go home now has to apply for a visa, which is, I mean, back to the home country, not home. The home is Canada. But if they want to go visit their relatives, if they want to go for the marriage season, if they want to do business, all that's now being hindered by not on the Canadian side, but on the on the um, Indian side, Mr. Modi has used the division within India, inside India, to split communities against each other. Remember, he was PNG. He, he couldn't get a visa to Canada until he mm. became prime minister or the U.S. because of uh, allegations, unproven, but allegations about his treatment when he was chief minister of Gujarat. But, uh, that, my first home in India. So uh, about Muslims, the division between Sikhs and Hindus uh, is being inflamed unquestionably by the yeah. policies and regrettably by the policies of the government of India as part of a majoritarian approach to, uh, to its uh, holding power, seeking and holding power. But if they transport that back into Canada, and there are signs that that's happening, that would be a most unfortunate unfortunate result of all of this. Um, you know, we have to all be Canadians in this regard. Mm. We have to be very self-aware that manipulation possi possibly is going on. Uh, so it's not a question of immigrants bringing the, you know, the, the, the troubles of their home country into Canada. There's real concern now, and I hope it's false, uh, but real concern that uh, foreign countries are importing their domestic yeah. concerns into Canada to our very uh, open and dynamic society. And that would be that would be not a justiciable crime, but it would certainly be highly unfortunate. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, the relationship with, uh, between Canada and India and how it is now strained. Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Most certainly. Same, same to you, Scott. 
Phil Gersky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Uh, we, we talked years ago, three years ago now, about an RCMP officer who was charged uh, for shell- sharing information that he shouldn't have been sharing, sensitive criminal intelligence. Uh, Phil Gersky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst here now. Phil, this is now coming to trial. As you sit back and watch this, what are your thoughts? Uh, several, Scott. I mean, it's, it's been a while coming to trial, and I guess that's the way that trials work in Canada. The defense has to have time to, you know, I guess, make its defense. I understand that there's been issues with the lawyers for, for Mr. Orchis as well. But I think from my perspective, what's interesting is this is the first time that the Security of Information Act has really been tested in the Canadian court. And we'll see if it's any more effective than the old Official Secrets Act, which was useless because people would regularly violate that and nothing would happen. So a lot of us who worked in intelligence kind of want to see, uh, is there any teeth to the laws and is there any punishment for people who violate the secrecy they're supposed to protect? Uh, he says, or the defense says, uh, he had the authority to uh, disclose the information. What does that mean? How does that pertain to this? God, Scott, if I had the answer to that, I'd be a gazillionaire. I have no idea. You know, we certainly have authority to share with intelligence partners in the Five Eyes, the Americans, the Brits, et cetera. Uh, when I was at CSIS, we had what are called Section 17 arrangements with different countries, whereby we said, yes, we'll share intelligence with you, you share with us. Without knowing who these four people were with whom we shared intelligence, it's impossible for anyone to determine, you know, what their status was, whether they mm. were part of some kind of network and why he shared. So it's, it's a pretty bizarre statement to make and a very bold one. And I guess uh, when he testifies, he's going to try to demonstrate why he shared information with those, with those individuals. And at that point, I guess we'll be better informed. So will we have access to the intelligence or evidence needed to continue with this? Or is this going nowhere? Not necessarily. So my understanding is that a lot of when the, when the sensitive intelligence is discussed, it'll be in camera uh, with the jury present, but nobody else. So the, so the jury will be cleared to a certain extent to be able to see the intelligence, they'll be sworn to secrecy, and hopefully none of them will, will go public and be charged under the, the uh, Security of Information Act. It's frustrating for you, for me, for the media, because a lot of this information will never make itself public, and it somehow we'll get, someday we'll get a verdict, guilty or innocent, and we won't always know the reasons why those, those verdicts were reached. So I guess it's a wait-and-see thing, but uh, the, ultimately the, um, what has to be protected are these sources and methods. That's what you, when you work in intelligence, you recognize that from day one. Would he have known what he was doing was in the gray area or perhaps not right? I guess we can't answer that either, can we? I would certainly hope so. In my career over 32 years, I was pretty clear on, you know, whom I could share information with, under Mm -hmm. what circumstances, to what extent, uh, protecting sources and methods to the ultimate degree. I wouldn't assume he got the same briefings that I got. He was a pretty senior RCMP official, Scott. I'm sure he's, you know, been around the, the, you know, the, the, the track once or twice. And I can't see him saying, well, no one ever told me I couldn't do this because it's essentially it's brained into you on day one. So his uh, his you know, if he were to say that, that would be a very odd statement for him to make as far as I'm concerned. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS Allen uh, analyst on a RCMP officer now being accused of sharing sensitive intelligence. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. We'll talk again soon. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. And thank you for the applause. I know that uh, in politics, the uh, 
there are only two times when people are, give you a strong applause and they're happy to see you. The day you arrive and, of course, the day you leave. That is the new Speaker of the House, Greg Fergus from Montreal, the first black Speaker of the House history made on a couple of uh, occasions today. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, and is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing all right, Scott. I hope you are, too. So far, so good. What are your thoughts on the new speaker? He seems like a person everybody loves and uh, a very uh, quite the gentleman. Uh, yeah, Greg is a real decent fellow. I, I knew Greg when he was a party staffer. He used to be the, I believe, executive director of the Liberal Party, Scott. He's liked certainly within political circles by all um, uh, all staff people who've, uh, who've had occasion to deal with him. Interesting, though, um, he has had some rubs with the PMO uh, over the last little while. He's offered, um, prior to taking on this role, he'd offered them some criticism about, you know, not doing enough to address um, diversity within the caucus and, and the like. Um, and that may have helped him, actually, in this election, because I think if the PMO uh, had put their finger on any particular speaker and said vote for or any particular candidate and said vote for that person, that person probably would have lost. So Greg may have benefited from um, speaking his mind from time to time uh, in criticism of uh, of his government. So um, so maybe that helped him. Who knows? Some say that uh, we need to change the way the speaker does things. So what happened with the last speaker doesn't happen with this speaker. Does that need to be done or is it just a case we have to cross our T's and dot our own I's? Uh, or you actually understand your history and maybe do some research and maybe have a red flag come up when somebody says to you that they fought against the Russians in the Second World War. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, I do think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from from all of uh, all of that. I know John Ivis in the National Post wrote a great column about how people don't know their history anymore, and I, I don't know whether you can uh, you know give somebody a history test if they're going to be the speaker. Though one would hope that they understand some political history. And in the case of Greg, I think he does. I think there are things around security and vetting, and you and I talked about them last week, that uh, if they're not formalized, should be, particularly when you have you know, a major international protected person in there. Maybe if the House of Commons security doesn't have the resources to do a deep dive, they should. So all of those things uh, probably uh, need to be looked at. And uh, and I suspect they will. Uh, Greg, uh, Greg is a fairly diligent fellow, so I suspect he will see what went wrong there, what we may now know, and, and hope uh, for him, his own purposes that he doesn't make a similar mistake. Uh, need a history test or a staff that just verifies? How big is the staff for the Speaker of the House? I don't know that at the moment, but it's not insignificant. Um, it, Tim, I was watching CTV News last night, and I had to replay this back twice. They said he had a staff of 2,000. How is that possible? Oh, no, 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 no. I that must include that. other things. Yeah, yeah, that's the entire parliament, Scott. Um, All right. He would... So, I mean, technically, right? That's so, like, what about his staff? He must have staff. Well, that he, he has a check this staff. staff. He has a director of communications. He would have other, you know, legislative policy experts. So, probably ten uh, immediate personal staff, not not mm-hmm. unlike a, a federal cabinet minister, um, and then other legal advisors and and the like that are more bureaucratic in nature. So, he's going to want to make sure he gets people he's comfortable with who have, you know 
both a sophistication and a, and a political sense. It's good. What, what probably is going to be very important for him in his new role is to set the tone early, right? Um, I, I think uh, it's been a pretty rambunctious place, and I think the argument um, that, that is, is playing out that suggests it's more rambunctious is a lot of these people never got to know each other, right? Uh, they, the parliament came in in 2021, but the parliamentarians didn't necessarily themselves. So though you see lots of theatrics in the House of Commons, sometimes you have the ability to get things done because MPs from different parties do establish friendships and the like. But without some of that happening, the role of the speaker is harder because he's got to be fairly firm in making sure that the place doesn't turn into a circus. So uh, I think uh, Greg will at least have some goodwill in the early days to do that because the history-making aspect of this is fascinating. I mean, I I, I'm shocked that this is the first person, uh, first uh, person of color, uh, who's been the Speaker of the House of Commons. Um, mm. I had thought that maybe Lincoln Alexander, the former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, had when he was an MP, had served in some capacity, but I guess not. Um, I mean, that's history making. I think people are going to want to be on the right side of that. But uh, politics, of course, will uh, find its way in eventually, I suspect, and bad manners will, too. It's been a circus for quite a while, and this isn't the first speaker to say, hey, you know, we got to try to gain control of this. Can you actually do that? <laughs> I mean, what, uh, well, what, you, what can you do? Just kick them out? You can, yeah, you can refuse to recognize them. I mean, can you imagine a politician who doesn't have the opportunity to speak? That is actually power. Um, probably more effective than kicking them out because sometimes if you kick them out, you empower their party yeah. and that turns into a political issue. So maybe you don't let them speak and that's been done in the past. And uh, Greg is going to have to come up with techniques to, uh, to, to do all of that and, uh, and build relationships across party lines too with the House leaders. Those are the people designated by each of the major parties to determine how the House functions. He's got to have a good rapport with uh, with them to make sure it works. And he's got to also find out what work he needs to do now as speaker with the uh, damage done by the actions of Mr. Rhoda to rebuild the reputation of Parliament internationally. There's the role of the prime minister and all of that, but the speaker probably ought to look at how he can contribute to that as well. I remember everybody said Rhoda was a great guy and everybody loved him until, of course, something terrible happened. What's different between what's the difference between these two speakers? Is there? I think Greg's probably been closer to Ottawa politics and he's worked in the party machinery and he has a longer history with parliamentary politics. So at least he comes with more of a knowledge, and one would assume, you know, knowledge is only as good as the way you use it, of the, the, the pitfalls and the traps to avoid. Um, and, and he comes with, a, as I say, a, a broad respect base that, uh, uh, that Mr. Rhoda also had, but I think Greg is, um, uh, Greg, uh, Greg's knowledge will serve him well here. Mm. Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, talking about the new Speaker of the House, Craig Ferg- uh, sorry, Greg Fergus. Tim, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care. Talk soon, Scott. You know, it's hard to make sense of, uh, of what's happening with the economy and inflation. All we know as consumers 
is it's way more expensive than it was uh, just a short time ago. Uh, and and obviously, uh, paychecks don't necessarily seem to be following that in every uh, segment. Nicholas Vincent, uh, Bank of Canada Deputy Governor, uh, Governor says business, it's business's fault inflation keeps going up because they are still raising prices more frequently and by larger amounts than they did pre, pre, uh, pre-pandemic. I don't know. I'm not a biz prof, but I'm guessing because their costs are up more and more than they were prior to the pandemic. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, Doing very well. Thank you, Scott. So wouldn't it make sense that, yeah, businesses keep raising their prices more frequently and by larger amounts than than obviously we're going to feel that. But uh, is there anybody that's immune from what we're all feeling? I don't think so. By the way, I did read the article with a great interest um, because, you know, I I'm a former banker. I lent mine. I lived through a period in the late 70s. And so I was curious because this is a, a prof in the, in uh, Quebec who has um, studied um, uh, price increases. And it's something I talk about in my classes because it's part of supply and demand. I mean, price, so-called price discovery, you know, price discovery is just a fancy word for saying, you know, that the markets will put a price out there. A company will put a price out there. And if they've got nobody offering to buy the product and they the product sits in the shelf, well, companies really Maybe I set the price a little too high and then they reduce it. So, I mean, price is absolutely fundamental in price setting. There's no question about that. But to your, I think I heard a little bit of skepticism in your voice, Scott, and I, and it was in mine too. First, clear, I am not trashing this guy. I'm not disagreeing with what he said. I, I, I am saying that he didn't go far enough, in my view. Um, he did acknowledge that uh, a supply created recession or or interruption which we went through is very unusual and it's different i agree and so he was saying because there's these interruptions which just screw everything up with the supply side it makes prices i think he said and i agree much more erratic much more variable okay i'll go along with that too here's where i wished he'd gone further he and and i realize i've been saying this to you on on your show for some time he acknowledged that at the very beginning of the uh, of the pandemic, the supply interruption was caused by, although he doesn't really talk about this, it was caused by governments sending us all home. I'm not trying to re-debate that. I'm just saying that we blew up the, the, the it wasn't a little green man that came down from outer space cut from Mars. It was a deliberate decision by governments to send everybody home. And we thought we were being very prudent. And everybody said, hey, that's a really good idea. And but it really, really blew up the supply chains and it's caused all these problems today are a consequence of all of us collectively agreeing and supporting governments, Canada, U.S. and other countries to we didn't say blow up the supply chain. We said, send everybody home so they'll be safe. And we say, yes, yes, yes. We all want to go home, be safe so we can't catch the virus. Okay, but there's this thing called unintended consequences. And nobody but nobody said, well, wait a minute. If we go do this, what is this going to do to everything? And people said, no, 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 we don't, no time to talk about that. You know, lives are at stake, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, fine. But what we ended up doing, I think, was creating far greater costs than the cost of what we did. I mean, the immediate hmm. uh, benefit. And so we blew up the supply chain. We created uncertainty. And we put a huge amount of stimulus into the system at the very time when there were shortages. 
And where I'm going with this, Scott, and this is where I do disagree with him a little bit, is if you have shortages, and shortages have occurred throughout human history, going all the way back to Roman times, well, the last thing, what do people do when there's a shortage? You offer more money because you want that product, Mm -hmm. whatever that product is, because you want it. And if there's a shortage of it, if you've got money, if you've got money and you're affluent or comfortable, you offer a higher price because you want that product, whatever it is, toilet paper, for God's sake, whatever. And so what I'm saying is then we came along, the government came along and poured gargantuan, unprecedented, never seen before stimulus into the system, interest rates lower than the U.S. Civil War, lower than the Great Depression, lower than World War I and World War II. And guess what? We goosed. The in, the shortages, we goose mm. the inflation. So yes, the businesses are putting up the price. Who else can put up prices? They're the ones that control the, the production function. So yes, they were putting up the prices, but they were, here's my point. They were putting up the prices in response to the shortages and yeah. the price increases that were being juiced or goosed by the fact that we, A, created the shortages through shutting everybody down, and B, through billions and hundreds of billions of stimulus that we poured into the system by pouring gasoline on the fire, then businesses, guess what? They responded. Could you not say the same thing about continually increasing interest rates and how that affects inflation, what have you? And, you know, there's obviously there was a reason for that as well to try to tame all of this. Yeah. Um, I, I know this argument very well. I believe me, I heard it 78, 79, 80 when I was at BMO in Ottawa. And I've heard it again very recently. Um, and why I respectfully disagree is the following is, um, and I don't dispute that interest rate increases cause the cost of borrowing to go up for businesses mm-hmm. and consumers. So I'm not denying that. What I am saying is this. And so people say, well, that's counterintuitive. I mean, if you're making it go up, then that's just going to make everything worse. No, because increasing those interest rates to everybody or mostly everybody, you are taking money out of their pockets. They have less money to spend on everything else. If that was what I'm trying to say is the the assumption is that by increasing those interest rates, people still have the same amount of money to go spend on all the other stuff that they've been buying. No, when the rates go up like that, you have a lot less money in your bank account every month to go spend on stuff because you're paying a hell of a lot more, pardon my language, on a bigger interest rate payment on your mortgage or on your line of credit at the bank if you're a small business. So it is in, in I hate to use these words, but in aggregate, an interest rate increase slows down the economy because it takes money out of the economy. In that sense, it's very similar to a tax increase where they take money out of your pocket so you at the end of the day have less money to spend what's sticky inflation uh, presuming that inflation that hangs around isn't responding in essence yes when it when it, sticky inflation is where uh the uh, the com- the company businesses because they 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 control the production function they're the ones setting the prices for their products um where they are loathe to start to reduce prices if inflation is going down because they don't know but their cost structure on the other side you know they're buying from inputs this is something that jagmeet singh just simply doesn't understand and no i'm not picking on him but every business buys stuff from other businesses called inputs Mm -hmm. carl university has inputs we buy computers and we buy desks and and -hmm. all the stuff we do to run the university hospitals have inputs you know bandages and drugs and blah 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 so my point being 
that the these the sticky inflation is where the uncertainty this is what i wished he'd talked more about in his speech and it was a very good speech by the way i wished he'd talked more about the uncertainty caused by inflation and so businesses i think what he was saying maybe he didn't want to say that so i will businesses are hedging their bets at times of higher on inflation you don't know how quickly your inputs the, the your suppliers how quickly those prices are going to go up. And so you're saying, wait a minute, I'm not going to cut my prices because I don't know what my suppliers are going to do to me tomorrow morning. So you tend to be, you tend to be more cautious and say, yeah, I'm going to put through a bigger increase just to cover, you know, my, 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 my backside and um, to be, again, use slang English. And uh, so the prices are more sticky where it, because things are uncertain when you have this period we're in with high inflation. When rates were for the last 30 years at 2%, you, you you could you could bet the farm on that. You knew mm. every year they went up by two percent. Everybody knew it. Consumers knew it. Businesses knew it. There was no need to um, hedge your bets and maybe push through a little bit bigger a price increase because you weren't sure about what prices were doing next year. In a current situation, we uh, there's more uncertainty and businesses are are far less confident of where prices are going. And so what he was saying, I agree with him, is they sometimes hedge a little bit and put through a bigger price increase just to protect themselves, just in case. And that's another negative of inflationary periods. It really messes everything up. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprout School of Business, Carleton University, The Price of Life. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Let's bring in the other one, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. So uh, I'm at Costco the other day. Yes. And I'm, buying my, I'm buying my weekly crate of toilet paper. And yes. uh, I, 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 I had to ask my, one, my, money, my wife for, for some extra money uh, to buy some gold bars. Yes. We're talking so, about that on the show today. That's why I'm talking yeah, about it. I'm doing a, an actual promo here for you. So, um, do we know why there's cold bars at Costco? Is that was that on the? You know what you guys need? Yeah. So forget for, about the massive containers of toilet paper. You guys need some gold bars. So first of all, I love that your Freudian slip where you simply called your wife my money because I mean, listen, we all we all understand <laughs> as opposed that. to my mother. I do that a lot. Oh yeah. See, that one's more embarrassing. If she's your oh, money, that's okay. Especially um, from your wife. Yeah, and uh, so. I think truly, and we're going to find out, uh, as I say, because I don't know the complete answer to this one, which is why I'm having uh, somebody on to talk about it. But I, I really believe that the way the economy is right now, there are a lot of people very, very nervous about where it might go. And you know, the, the, the stock market has been rising and I, I mean, I, I'm not an economist, I'm not a stock guy, but I keep looking at it going. We, with everybody seemingly so nervous about the economy, how does the stock market keep going up? And I keep waiting for it to have a, you know, one of those days where we talk about it for weeks afterwards. Um, hasn't yet, but I, I, you got to believe that people, you know, gold is always the thing that well, when there's holds time, its yeah. value. When there's times, uh, when there's, uh, economic, times, yeah. yeah uh, when there's uncertainty with the economy and such, uh, that's when gold usually does well. Yeah. Now I do find that the, I love the description of it because I, when I first saw the story, they said gold bars and I'm like, really, you walk in and there's like this stack of yeah. like, no, that'd be like, that'd be under a key, like with the phone, you know, a phone yeah, or something like that would be under a, like, and with like the expense of booze, it's under a key. But the, the bars are basically the size of, you know, Halloween chocolate bars. 
But they're still worth like almost three grand a piece. That's what gold is going for these days. Wow. But yeah, it's not quite it's not quite as impressive as walking in and there's two armed guards behind this just stack of golden you know bricks that are there. But it is it's a, it's a really interesting thing that people are concerned enough clearly with what's going on that they want to have something tradable if the economy really does go for a poop. And the other thing about it that I've, I've found so interesting lately about where we are is we keep hearing that we're moving towards digital only, that we're going to eventually get rid of cash. And I guess that means that gold is the ultimate cash because even if bills and currency goes away, you can always somehow trade your gold for something. Uh, yeah, but, uh, it just seems an odd place to have that. Um, you know, uh, is it, so what next you're getting it out of a white van in the parking lot? Hey, do you want some cold bars? Yeah. You might want it to see if seems, that one peels. It just seems, yeah, really. See, throw it in the pool and see if it turns color with the chlorine. Um, it just seems like it, that's an odd place to be shopping. If you were out shopping for gold, would you get it at Costco? But then again, Costco is known. The reason the prices are so cheap is because they have such tremendous buying power. So somewhere Mr. Costco is like, okay, I'm going to buy all these gold bars and we'll give some to the customers. I don't know. It just it well, seems hard. The other thing, Scott, is that, I mean, I don't know how much you do shop at Costco. I know you were saying off the top. None, do, but... none. Oh, really? Well, I've been a couple of times. I got a card, but I refuse to go in. I can't go in there. I can't go in. I can't do it anymore, Scott. I can't do it. It's terrible. Well, but the point is that there's stuff, even though it's all, you know, you're right. You, you buy a, a jar of dill pickles that's 52 gallons and, you know, yeah. you'll never go through it. But it's, the, the stuff is quality. Like you, I think yeah, most yeah. people look and go, all right, if they said we're buying gold bars at, I don't know, pick some other store, you go, oh, I'm not sure. I think I'm not getting the Dollarama gold bars, but I'm going to get the Costco. But I think people have faith that if they buy something at Costco, it's going to be good quality. And therefore, you know what? I can, I can do this and I can believe I'm not being hosed. Attention shoppers. We've got a, we've got a recall on the Costco Kirkland score, uh, gold bars. Kirkland gold bars have now been recalled. I want to know how though, when you have, uh, you know, Black Friday or any of these big shopping days and you know, you always see those, those videos of the people like at Walmart storming the store yes, and fighting over yes. TV. Why are there no fights over gold bars? That you would think you would want to fight over. That's a very valid point. And these are questions that will continue to be asked and answered on the Scott For Radley generations show. to come. Coming up, just like the green belt, coming up after the six o'clock news. Have a good one, Scott. Thanks, Scott. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Barb on Bill C-18. Hi, Scott. It looks like the House of Commons is confirming the feds are now going after Spotify and Apple to pay their fair share. First online news, now podcast. They are absolutely banging the bushes for money. What a mess. Cheers. Barb, keep right except to pass. 